That's what we're trying to find out. We're trying to find out who hate watched where and with what. Stop podcasting. I'm not. Oh, right, I am. I'm podcasting, I'm podcasting, I'm pot... Boop, clunk. We have solved the mystery of what this bonus, not a hate watch, is about. It is about Clue, a murder mystery, a comedy, a, a political drama mixed all in together, while lots of different things. Alice, what did you think of this seminal cult classic film? I I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was really skeptical because um, this movie had been hyped up to me forever as being like extremely funny and very funny. And um, I think in the way that that's, things can get overblown, have their reputation sort of like um, become really hyperbolic, I was very worried that I wasn't going to like it because as soon as something gets built up to me that much, I, I immediately stop finding it funny. I think I think the the classic example of this that we've talked about in the past is Taskmaster. Yes. Like UK Taskmaster has been has been has been so hyped to me that when I watch it it's like I'm trying to find the funny but it's so, I'm looking for it in a way that makes the, everything not funny. Um so that was the, that was my fear with Clue and it didn't it didn't come true. Like Clue is great. It's very it is very funny. It, there's a lot more there than um I think like I'd I'd been led to believe like I I you know movies like that like sort of cult classic movies can kind of get boiled down into to series of quotes and things. Um, I didn't really feel like that I had that with with Clue, and and yeah, it was just it was just really fun. Yes, Clue is one of those films that has ardent fans because I think it's one of those movies that you either really love or really hate. Maybe you don't care about. But I've not heard of very many people who hate this film. Now, it might be the types of people I surround with. Like, maybe it's a theater thing. We dislike this film because it's a farce. It's very theatrical. It's campy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of murder mystery plays out there. So we can kind of just relate to the structure of that. Um, a lot of my friends who just like comedy. It crosses a lot of different types of comedy. A lot of wordplay. A lot of physicality. A lot of situational stuff. Um, and it plays at both highbrow and lowbrow references like that's the thing that i think surprises a lot of people is they don't realize like they know the board game clues so they think okay there's gonna be a murder and we're gonna figure out who did it but they don't realize that the setting of it is in the cold war in 1954 in new england so not in like an english murder mystery um where it originally was set because clue of course comes from the british game cluedo which is a pun on a game they had called Ludo, L-U-D-O. They yes. watched that in America because no one understood, and so it's just called Clue, which is much cleaner. Um, but I believe the film was also advertised as Cluedo in uh, the UK, where uh, it, it was uh, there. The director and writer of this is Jonathan Lynn. Now, are you familiar with the name Jonathan Lynn if I just said it off the top of, you know, off of here? No. Okay. You might recognize one of his other works, which is another seminal classic of a different genre, an Oscar-winning classic, the film that got Marissa Tomei her Oscar, My Cousin Vinny. Incredible movie. Incredible movie. One that Missy hasn't seen yet for no other reason than I just, I haven't sat down to watch it. I don't know why. Um, oh. I've known for a little bit now that it's the same. Put, put it on the director. list. Put it on the list. I will put it on the list for sure. Jonathan Lynn also. That is that was a that was a that was a that was a seminal classic for Alice in, in the Alice household. Okay, 
I look forward to that one then. Uh, again, I love a Marissa Tomei. Arguably the best Marissa Tomei. Arguably the best. I mean, I've seen Oscar, and I thought she was fantastic in Oscar, so we'll have to rival those two at some point. Now, She, she won an Academy Award in a comedy. Yeah. You know how rare. hard that is? So rare. Jonathan Lynn also very well known to UK audiences for his work on Yes Minister, which is a proto of Veep and the thick of it, um, and was a satire of the Thatcher era. Uh, now, the unfortunate person involved in Clue that is the connective tissue is one John Landis. Fuck John Landis. Fuck Max Landis. And yes. uh, wait, wait. Have you ever read the Max Landis? Have you read the Max Landis um, insane Google Doc about Carly Rae Jepsen? No. What is? I this? just have to say this because he's he 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 wrote this insane theory of like how he can like it, it, it's one of those like like celebrity stalker things where it's like he can hear the secret messages in the music that she's leaving for him and the the best part of the doc is that in the beginning um at the, at the very be- like when he's describing her album um emotion and the song run away with me he describes he describes this sound that is like a I, I forget the term he uses. It's ridiculous. It's like it's like a low sex moan of an of a of an instrument. And he's talking about a saxophone. He's just talking about a saxophone. You know, sometimes the saxophone is the sex moan of the brass section. Yes. So anyway, sorry. I sorry for the t- tangent. I just the fact that he wrote this is like seared into my brain and I must bring it up anytime he, he, he comes up. I'm fuck, happy you fuck, did. Fuck, fuck, fuck both Landis. Exactly. And fuck we can, both Landis. we can quickly move uh, away from them because it was also produced by Deborah Hill. Now, do you know the name Deborah Hill at all? No. Uh, is, is, is she related to Mildred and Patty Hill who wrote Happy Birthday? No, unfortunately not. She is connected to um, a genre director who is well-known for his work as well. She was the producer of John Carpenter's early work. So Halloween, The ah. of New York, and Escape from L.A. I believe also Halloween 2, they work together. Um, and mm. so uh, He who shall, who shall Not Be Named um, what connected them together. So that is the the tissue behind the movie clue uh, on in here. So that's why the element of it being a political satire in certain ways and playing off of communist fears in America, the fact that everything they're being blackmailed about more or less, it's all social and political aspects of the 1950s during the like McCarthy era. Cause you see that the cook is watching McCarthy era hearings uh, on the television, one of the uh, if, if that and the title card, 1954, are, are what give us our little clue into it on there. I'm gonna try not to say our little clue into everything on here, but because it's it's clue and there are a lot of clues, it's gonna be a cluetastic vocabulary that we're gonna be running into. Ah, <sighs> okay, yeah. Um, I I didn't I, I played Clue a lot as a kid with with my mom, but we never. I didn't know about the Cold War setting necessarily. Um, it just, I, I just assumed it was a mansion. It was like a dinner party in a mansion because mm-hmm. there's, they're in the parlor, they're in the library, they're in the, 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 the pool room or whatever yeah. and so on. It, it, and that's the, the wonderful thing about the film is that, of course, every single room is there. The layout, the set uh, is a hallway that has the entrances to all of it, as well as the second floor and the cellar, places we don't get to explore in the board game. Uh, 
And as well as the, the interesting thing about this set is that it had a second life. It was used as the set in Dynasty for a hotel lobby that is in there. So uh, same layout and stairwell and everything. So it's, it's, it's just a gorgeous set and looks like a mansion from that time. Like that's the odd yes. thing is they made this board game's map make sense as an actual living space. Right, because the board game doesn't make sense no, at all. No, it's just like clearly, oh, here's a little round circle area. And also secret passages that somehow go from opposite sides. Is there, just go through the basement. We don't know. They're very smart in the movie and they don't get into it. They just acknowledge the fact that the secret passages exist and they play into the murders, which is very cool. Um, well... If if you went to a if you went to a dinner party in a in a rich in a mansion that you've never been to before and you discovered there were secret passages, would you be surprised at this point? Oh, absolutely not. No, and that's one of yeah. the things I love about this film is as it goes on and on, no one is surprised by anything that happens anymore because clearly yeah. this night is an upside down night. Um, we can talk about the cast, the stacked cast of this film that I think mm -hmm. is what brings a lot of people in as well. We have yeah. our six people who are being blackmailed. The one, we'll do them in order that they arrive. So we have Colonel Mustard, who arrives first and is greeted by Wadsworth, the butler, played by Tim Curry. Uh, I want to say- Very young Tim yes, Curry. I wanna, very, very yes. young. I want to say the Tim Curry discussion uh, for last simply because we can talk on and on and on about it. So we'll go through sure. uh, with Martin Mull as Colonel Mustard. Martin Mull, of course, would have been known to audiences from Fernwood Tonight. Um, as the sidekick uh, in the fictional talk show uh, with, uh, I believe, Fred Willard on there as well uh, with it. And, you know, uh, Colonel Mustard, what did you think of him as Colonel Mustard? And also, let's think about the Colonel Mustard that you might have pictured in your head before seeing this film. And how did they match and what did you think of his performance? I mean, I think I'm heavily influenced by the box art and the art that was in the original version of the well, the version of the game that we had in the '90s, oh, anyway. And um, I think of the characters, Colonel Mustard, like Martin Mull, looked the most like what I would expect Colonel Mustard to look like. Yes, I think of like sandy blonde hair with a mustache, a little like a little shorter and heavy set. Um, and not to say that Martin Mull is all of those things, but like. C compared to some of the disparities that we're going to talk about, like if you showed me a picture of the cast and, and I had to pick him out, I would have said, oh, that's Colonel Mustard for sure. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I love that he plays most of it very straight. Uh, he, of course, the Colonel takes things very seriously. A lot of the mm -hmm. his sort of jokes that they build into him are him missing obvious double entendres because he's just so fumed at the moment with uh, the uh, the situation that's ongoing. Um, I, I, it's probably one of the more underappreciated performances simply because it can get overshadowed by, frankly, every single woman in this cast. Um, and because his, his bigger moments uh, t are paired with other people. You know, there's not a lot mm -hmm. that he's doing uh, by himself. Um, but, I but I mean, I, I feel like that that's that's sort of Martin Mull's lane. Like yes. he shows up in a comedy, you know, he's going to be funny and reliable. He can play the straight man. He can he can say a, a ridiculous thing as a as a punchline that that he doesn't recognize as as a punchline. Like like he's very good at that. Yes. Can deliver it just straight across the bow. Um, I think his best scene and best work is when they are in the library after there have been two murders and he's leading the party up to get ready for the search so they can split everything up 
and he's just running and he does the whole uh, bit between him and Wadsworth with the no meaning yes, uh, give us a straight answer, what was the question, all those great little back and forths, that little who's on first, and then his interactions with Mrs. Peacock um, after she's freaking out. This is war, Peacock. You cannot make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Every cook will tell you that, which of course leads to the classic line, but look what happened to the cook. Uh, next person is Christopher Lloyd as Professor Plum, pre-Doc Brown, but post his work on Taxi. So yes. that's where most people would have known him, him from mm -hmm. on here. So two, two already people from known for their sitcom work uh, being cast in this as our characters. I was shocked that I didn't know that Christopher Lloyd was in this, given how much I, like, I, like, I very much heard about Tim Curry, but I, that was the only, like, I think, named actor that I knew about. Yeah, I think with Christopher Lloyd, it's the same reason with Martin Mull. A lot of his moments are very under the radar. He's playing it very straight. When there is the panic about, he is great at just shouting over everyone and trying to be reasonable. One of his random lines that I quote that I don't know why it's so funny to me, but it's after uh, Mr. Body is shot and he, uh, they, uh, Miss Green grabs him and says, how did he die? And Professor Plum with the most dramatic delivery goes, I don't know, I am not a forensic expert. So whenever people ask me something and I don't know, I just sometimes will say, I don't know, I'm not a forensic expert. Um, and uh, mm. he, he uh, I think, does a really good job at being a lech that doesn't come across as a super creep, but more as like someone who's like, mm. that sort of, oh, psychological Freudian, like, oh, everything can be taken as sex. Yeah. And, you know, is very free with sex kind of thing, which gets him in trouble. Um, but he plays it very cool and so I, you can kind of understand this character being a bit of a sex pest but not like someone who but someone who could like cover his tracks you know in a way well yeah that's a really good point because especially for the time mm -hmm. it's subtle it's 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 very measured and i think it's it's like you know there's plenty of misogyny going on in, in movies at this time so that's that's a really good point i, I hadn't thought about it in, a, in that context yeah, i mean yeah, they, they could have right. even driven it so that he's you know he basically has like a wooga eyes for other gals but you know it, they play it well with the sexual tension that does exist just within the blackmail but within these people who are put together now the one that doesn't have any sexual tension is michael mckean as mr green our homosexual character in two of the three different endings. Uh, in the last one, um, uh, a very different uh, conclusion there. What did you think of, uh, relatively speaking, young Michael McKean, uh, I believe post Spinal Tap, and as well as he probably would have been on Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, oh yeah, this would have been post Laverne and Shirley as well, 85, of course. Um, I don't have a lot of familiarity, like like with Michael McKean. Like like honestly, of the works you mentioned, like I've watched, um, I've watched both, but I I couldn't I couldn't point him out of a lineup to be to be candid. Um, I think I think he he blended into the ensemble, and I think really it was like I think part of what made the ending so surprising was he was such a pivotal role in multiple of the endings. And mm -hmm. I guess I hadn't really been paying that much attention to him. He hadn't been drawn focus during the rest of the, during the rest of the movie, especially compared to, like you said, the women and, 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 and Wadsworth and, um, and, and uh, Colonel Mustard, especially. And I do wonder if that was purposely built into the script so that when we get to that final ending, if that was the one that you happen to see in theaters, because we haven't talked about the 
three different endings to this film, uh, you would not suspect that he yeah, would be the character that is going to have a hinge, uh, especially in, in, the, in that one ending there. I love Michael McKean in this film. I think he does play everything. Again, like, the, the men are so across the bow. The women are the ones that get a lot more of the, like, innuendo jokes and a lot more of the, like, snipes and, like, jib or jabs. Again, yeah. stuff that usually is reserved for men in a lot of comedies. The women are given all of this, like, great material. Um, but I think he... The moments that he is given are really good. He does a great job in the reveal when Mr. Body is, or excuse me, uh, Wadsworth is throwing him around, and his reactions to all of that are great. He's a very reactive person, and I and and he's very rarely yeah, the one that's instigating any of the jokes or any of the things. But he's very great when he's reacting. Also, the, the moment when he answers the door, and they all say, uh, you know, is there a problem? We found a broken car down here. No, no, no. Yes. Uh, can I use your phone? No, no. Yes. <laughs> Just getting those few moments in there are are very good. We've talked about the men. Let's talk about the women. First, we're going to talk about Leslie Ann Warren as Miss Scarlet. Uh, are you familiar with any other work from Leslie Ann Warren? I am not. So I believe she got her start in... Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. I believe she was in a filmed version of it or a very successful Broadway production of it. She also was in, um, uh, oh, she uh, was in Mission Impossible. I did not realize that she was in one season of it. And she was uh, in Victor Victoria. That's the other one she was in at this point that I knew was a big one. She was nominated for an Oscar for it. So had been known um, around that time. Um, and at this point would have been known as very much a character actress. Um, a little of note that you, I know, will, will find annoying, but I always have to bring up when there's a connection to The Muppets. She did host a episode of The Muppets in the third season of The Muppet Show. Um, of course, of course, she did. And for how did this get made, listeners? Of course, you will know her from the uh, unsuccessful follow-up to Nashville, "A Night in Heaven," which was uh, written by Joan. Uh, I'm going to butcher her last name. To uh, Tukesbury, um, and uh, infamously has a scene where she uh, unzips the male co-star's pants in a hotel, and his penis just pops out. And I believe it's one of the only How to Skid Made films that has hung peen in it. And thumbs up. Uh, thumbs up for Missy. Okay. What did you think of her performance as Miss Scarlet? I mean, I, I thought I thought she was great. Um, I, I have to... This is probably where I should bring up the fact that they were not all wearing complimentary colors to their character names really confused me. Yes. Like... I knew it was Miss Scarlet because she looks like Miss Scarlet, but the fact that she was wearing a green dress the whole time was just really like the the cognitive dissonance there was just really too, um, um, was 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 it was a level of like background noise that I found actually hard to overcome at times. Oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, but I mean, she 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 is like as like a I guess like you know the femme fatale character. She was she was great. Um, very, very attractive that. They put her in a very, very nice dress. Yes. Um. And she and and they didn't. Something I noticed for her, and I think all of the women, especially, but especially her, because she was in some pretty tall heels. Like, there's a lot of like 
running back and forth and, and a lot of like farce style like um movement of it, it like during some of the more frantic scenes and they had her just booking it with everyone else they did not they did not slow her down so oh, um, yeah. big props to her i imagine that all of the women had to practice running on those parts and thank goodness it is a movie so they're not doing all the sequence you know one by one but there are yeah. a lot of moments where they are having to run across that set in heels and do it timed and you're right the the timing of this film is also surprising I find a lot of farce that is, like, say, successful farces that are done on stage, like Noises Off is my prime example. They do not translate well to on film because there's something about the timing of them that work with an audience that doesn't quite work when you're seeing it cold on a screen. But Clue never feels that cold, you know, except for the the moments that make you want to feel that. It always just feels like a very active, warm, energetic sort of thing. And and the pacing sometimes rarely lets up, especially when we get to the last part with the ending. You are just on a locomotion that is not going to stop. Absolutely. Um, I think probably some of my favorite scenes are hers is at the dinner table uh, when she has the quip about, um, <laughs> do you like uh, Kipling, Miss Scarlet? Sure, I'll get anything. I find most men need a lot of practice. Don't you, Mrs. Peacock? And Mrs. Peacock going, what? Huh? Uh, I mm-hmm. always loved her growing up. Her ending is one of the best because it has the gun count-off scene that is quoted so often where her and Wadsworth are counting off the bullets left in the gun. Um, but yeah, they give her a lot of lead moments. Her and Colonel Muster, when they get split up, a lot of that is sort of led by her and Push. So she gets a lot of the screen time of the of the women in here as well. So she, she always to me felt like like because the people who get their endings feel slightly elevated um it felt like all the women kind of had that that thrust upon them simply because they're also involved in the different endings uh throughout Mm -hmm. absolutely speaking of a person who gets their own ending mrs peacock what did you think of eileen brennan as mrs peacock i i I liked her performance i think the character is the kind of character that really I tend not to like. Okay. And so the fact that I didn't kind of like the fact that I didn't dislike the performance, I think, I think speaks to um, the quality that she brought. Um, I did kept, I did keep mistaking her for another actress. Um, the, I, whose name I cannot, whose name it can, I, it, escapes me but they're not the same person but um i do feel like there was kind of this um like i feel like like for in terms of women character actors there is that sort of like more um older or more matronly woman who's real who's stodgy and really uptight yes that shows up in a lot of films like this and so um i thought the role was good but i think her performance especially was excellent yeah it's great because you're having to play a character who at times is oblivious is times smarter than everyone else in the end you know knows so much more than a lot of people and has to be able to flip on a coin between real nasty and sugary sweet you know because her husband works as a diplomat or as a senator in washington Senator, yeah, and uh, so has to have a very diplomatic attitude toward everyone and of course, my favorite moment of hers is many people's favorite, her speech at dinner, where she says, well, someone's got to break the ice and it might as well be me. I mean, I'm used to it as part of my husband's work, and it's always difficult when a group of people get together to be acquainted for the first time, but I'm here to make the best of it. And 
And, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing here or what any of you are doing here or, frankly, what this dinner is about, but I am determined to have a good time and I'm very intrigued. And, oh my, this soup is delicious, isn't it? I fucked up one or two lines, but doing most of that from memory, I will take that as satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, Eileen Brennan, to audiences would have been known, um, a big one is The Sting, in which she plays the um, femme, femme fatalish character to um, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. As well as being the authoritative um, drill sergeant, or at least a senior officer to Private Benjamin, Goldie Hawn, in the film. But yeah, I think she comes in and just delivers one of the most eccentric, but somehow grounded performances in a film. Because you're right, this character could so easily go off the rails and just become super shrill, and become just mm -hmm. like Hennish, and you know, like, you know beyond matronly, but like a stereotype. And she plays against that by, again, at some points being the smartest person in the room. And you now, when you're done with the film, you're like, wait, was she playing dumb that whole time? Like what, how many different layers are there to this person? So yes. And the last performance. Flames on the side of her face, Mrs. White, Madeline Kahn, of course known to many from the uh, Mel Brooks films, for me, being on Sesame Street in a few things, her duet with Grover uh, lives in my head forever. What did you think of Madeline Kahn as Mrs. White? I mean, excellent, incredible. I think, I think, really, the I I felt like she was in many ways the other anchor to the movie with um with with Tim Curry's Wadsworth. I I, I feel like Wadsworth was like the narrative drive for the movie, and then. Um, White was often the not audience surrogate, but she was the one the most. She seemed the most sort of credulous about things, and I and I really enjoyed that. Yes, she's the one that is constantly asking, like, why are we in this situation, and what is even going on? And so you're right; she plays the perfect audience surrogate, the one that is willing to just stop and say, "I need someone to explain what is happening here." Many times, that is her role, is to just set up the questioning for everyone to get it when they're in the dinner party. She's the one that smashes her glass and says, please, can't we move on until this man finds out what's going on here? So she, again, moving the thing forward. Also, so many great one-liners. Uh, uh, husbands should be like Kleenex, soft, son, soft, strong, and disposable. Life after death is as improbable as sex after marriage. Uh, when it comes to men, I think flies are where men are most vulnerable. It just is like... Uh, just gorgeous. And that outfit, that reveal at the top, where she's wearing a black overcoat, and she says, yes, I'm going to be known as Mrs. White, but why? To reveal a white underlining under it, and then another black dress. Like, gorgeous. And just a reveal into the same pattern is just so funny. Like, as a person who watches too much Drag Race, a, re a reveal into what you're wearing is great. Absolutely. Okay. The big performance. The person who, as you said, narratively drives this entire film tim curry yeah 10 years after rocky horror the movie so he'd already been it'd been you know a few more years before the rocky horror show before the picture show what did you think of tim i mean incredible i i i have i think this is maybe the first full tim curry performance that I've actually watched like 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 oh like, really like completely i mean okay so like i've seen i saw rocky horror 
And I know that is a Tim Curry performance, but I think because that movie is a musical and because that movie has so many things going on, I guess I just don't think of it. Like, this is the first, like, movie-ass movie that I think I've seen Tim Curry in where he wasn't playing, like, you know, the character he plays in Home Alone 2 or playing some sort of, like, bit part. Um, Yes, like a full performance. Yes, exactly. And and yeah, it, and it was it was incredible. Like like I, like, I love Tim Curry. I think I think it's probably you know it's probably very short list of people who dislike Tim Curry at this point. But um, no, it was it was it was. I think I was surprised at how. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It's like like verbose the performance was. Like he has so much dialogue, and then halfway through the movie, as you pointed out while we were watching, he just reenacts the the first half of the movie f- like in its entirety. Um, I don't think that bit would work if you had someone else do it. I really don't. No, it is a singularly unique tour de force that really plays into everything that Tim Curry does well. His physicality, his face, his presence, his voice, like his Britishness even weirdly comes into it because it just separates him and gives him this otherness to everyone else in the house who are all American. So already from there, there's sort of this, and plays into the, oh, yes, of course, a British butler. We are at a murder mystery. We need a British butler. Wadsworth and Yvette the Maid, two characters that are in this film, along with all the victims who were all made up uh, specifically for this script by Jonathan Lynn. The original people that he who shall not be named uh, approached were Tom Stoppard and Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. And Sondheim and Perkins sounds weird until you realize they wrote The Last of Sheila together, which is, a, 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 I believe, a murder mystery or at least a mystery thriller uh, in of itself. Um, but then Jonathan Lynn was the one that uh, took it up in the end. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I now when I think Tim Curry, you're right. There aren't a few leading performances, but I knew him growing up from this film as well as Muppet Treasure Island and Home Alone. You know, which to me, yes. it, rewatching it as an adult, I always forget his part is smaller than what it actually is because in my mind, I'm like Home Alone too. That's the one where the villain is Tim Curry, and then like the mm-hmm. and then the two little robbers are at the end. You're like, oh no, he's only there like for very short parts of it, but still I think it's yeah, a, it's he's, a he's, scene stealer. He's, he's the Hector Elizondo of that movie. He is the fucking Hector Elizondo of that movie. He absolutely is. Yeah, I, I, I think it's also interesting that I, I while you were describing while you were describing it, I was I was wondering, who is the modern Tim Curry? If like oh, boy. I mean obviously there obviously there isn't a modern Tim Curry, but like, you know, who is that kind of like if you were not remaking this movie, but you were making a movie similar to this and you needed someone with the Tim Curry energy. Mm-hmm. Who would you bring in? Uh, here's the way that I would get around this is saying there is a stage version of Clue that exists that is based off this script. So in my mind, if I were casting this on Broadway, that's an easy way to kind of, I think, answer that question. Sure. That, that, ca- ca- that would, casting on Broadway, and let's say, beca- let's say we're stuck casting it with movie stars yeah, yeah, yeah. because, specifically because, you know, yeah. Broadway. Um, but. Because people, oh my god, you can't you can't can't talk about remaking Clue without the entire Clue fandom getting triggered. I believe there is a script in development by Ryan Reynolds, 
I don't know if that is in development hell, but that is the last of course, way that we've Of course, play. fucking Ryan and But here's the thing is, I don't know. I assume that's not going to be based off this script. I assume it's just going to be based off the yeah. IP and then it will be whatever it is. But again, yeah. so yeah. the point being for this specific script, I, I've i also been vamping because I'm struggling to think of someone. I'm trying to think right. of someone Right, yeah, it's foolish. hard. Oh, I think someone who could have a very good stab at it is Ben Wishaw. He was in Cloud Atlas. He is the young composer in that. He's obviously grown out. He was also Q in the new Bond films. He, I think, he's also Paddington Bear, uh, the voice of Paddington Bear, too. Uh, that's where a lot of people might know him from. It might just be me jumping to him because he, I have a crush on him, but I just think in terms of, of someone who I want to see give a full performance being able to give like the the more reasoned and more manicness about him i think mm -hmm. he could he could hold it down especially for like a, a broadway or like a re you know a uh we're doing intelligent remake whatever it is you know thing of it mm -hmm. you know i i can imagine him doing well but he's a, a pick i had to pull from the ether because he's not an obvious one. Oh, do you know who some i okay i will give you a bigger star not a missy's pick this is a Hollywood pick that I think could do it. Andrew Garfield. I think Andrew Garfield would 100% be Wadsworth the Butler because he is he has a comedic sense. He understands it. He has good energy that when he's in a high area, he can get like manic without getting too unhinged, which, you know, Wadsworth kind of goes up there. Um, I think he, um, I, I think he's just shown enough range to do it. I mean, I, do you want me, if you want me to say Bobby Pats, I'd also say Bobby Pats. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not trying to fish for no, Bobby Pats. I'm not, I'm not trying to fish I, for it. I think, I, honestly, the more that I think about him, I think Bobby Pats would make an interesting Wadsworth. I don't think Bobby Pats has ever done a comedy though. And I don't know that. I just don't think he's suited to it. Um, going back to Andrew Garfield for a second, um, you said you said manic without tipping over into like madness, and I was thinking that is absolutely the opposite of what happens in Under the Silver Lake. But in that movie, he's being asked to turn into a madman essentially, mm -hmm. and, he, and and he and the the level to which he is able to play unhinged is a little disturbing. Honestly, I feel like that movie kind of scarred me for him as an actor. And so, like, I would not, I would not sign off on on Garfield for Wadsworth because of that. But I think he could um, be tampered for it, though. And I think too, just for the reveal of, let's just say this script had never been written and never been done before, and we're presenting it originally for the first time with films. I think too, for an audience, it would be interesting because someone you don't expect to be a person who could be the killer in one of the endings is one of them. I think he would have a good payoff for being the villain in the end. Um, you know, I, I, having not seen Under the Silver Lake, so I can't comment on the disturbingness uh, that would be built in. Uh, thank goodness I didn't name one of the Scars Guards in terms of uh, <laughs> Wadsworth, because then in terms of disturbing, we would uh, have no end of sight for that. Uh, yeah, I know, That's a right? good question. Um, I, do you, honestly, though, I was just trying in my head to think of some of the other people, but there are no other names that pop out for me for any of the other characters, simply because I'm too attached to this movie. <laughs> and and yeah. it's hard for me. It's hard for me to then I would start theory drafting it and I would do it. I think I might come back and at some point 
present my modern day casting of all of them when I've had some time to think. Okay. But I think I think I could do it. I think I could. You do think it. you could do it right now? Do you want to do it? Do we want to? You want to um, do some? Uh, I don't know if I can do everyone. Give me like two seconds. Let me let me pull up the cast. Okay. Let me, let me... And while you're pulling this up, um, we're not going to do a full rundown of the film simply because this has been a movie that has been over talked about. If you love Clue, you already know the entire uh, rundown of the plot. Uh, and so uh, I'm much more interested uh, in in sort of Alice's general reaction because, as, as you said, this movie has been hyped for a while now. It really became a cult mm-hmm. classic. Uh, in the 90s when it started airing on cable a lot and when the VHS uh, became popular because the VHS and the TV film had all three endings, which when it was first released with three endings that were randomly in different theaters, so you would see in the movie theater listing, which, remember did you do that in newspaper? Uh, it would be, you know, clue A, ending A, ending B, ending mm-hmm. C, and people got confused by it and it seemed gimmicky and people didn't come out to it then. But every person who's involved in this film, uh, there was a great um, BuzzFeed article that is uh, the best uh, attempt to get everyone on the record about Clue as possible. I believe the only person that really wasn't talked about uh, was Eileen Brennan and um, Madeline Kahn, uh, because both of them passed before uh, the this you know art- this article was in like the late 2010s, mm-hmm. um, so it was only a few years ago, relatively speaking. Okay, you got the cast list up. Who are you thinking here? Ha! Ha! I could do something. I, I could do something very stupid. Um, I could do something very stupid, which is to say, Colonel Mustard would be Nick Offerman. Mrs. White would be Aubrey Plaza. Uh, Professor Plum would be Adam Scott. Um, Mr. Green would be uh, Rob Lowe. Um, uh, Miss Scarlet would be Rashida Jones. Mrs. Peacock would be Amy Poehler. Sorry, I, I was th- I was slotting some of those people in, and I was like, I'm just gonna put the full cast of Parks and Rec in here because okay. that, that that works. Well, if we're gonna um, do, if we're gonna do that, yeah, I'm gonna have Bradley Whitford as Professor Plum. No, I'm gonna have no. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do Robert Schiff as Colonel Mustard. Okay, I'm gonna yeah, do yeah, Martin yeah. Short as Wadsworth. I'm gonna have wait, wait, Martin Short or Martin Sheen? Martin Sheen. I'm so sorry. Martin Short would be a wild Martin Sheen. <laughs> I was very confused. I was like, are you doing the power. cast of the? Are you doing the cast of the morning show? No, Is that what's happening? No, 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 no. Okay, so so we'll get this. We'll get this going again. Richard Schiff yeah. as Mustard. Yeah. Bradley Whitford as Plum. I then think Dule Hall, Hill Hall, Hill, Hill as Mr. Green. I huh. think Abigail, I called her Abigail, Stocker Channing as Mrs. Peacock. Yeah. Yes. I think, what is Donna's actress's name? Uh, Janelle Maloney. Janelle, okay, so here's where we have to go this. Janelle, Janelle Maloney, Maloney, I think as... Mrs. White, and I think Allison Janney as Miss Scarlet. Huh. Okay. Um, you could flip some, maybe some who, of the women in there around a little bit, but I'm not. Yeah. Who, who's Wadsworth in yours? I said Martin Sheen, just simply because, and he wouldn't be he would be wouldn't be British. He would play it, you know, as a, sure. a yeah, stately, yeah, yeah. Yeah. stately American and, guy. 
and I don't think it'd have to be British North because yeah. like there's a, there's very much a like nor you know nor nor'easter mid Atlantic version of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would swap. I would make Bradley Whitford be Wadsworth. I would have. Um, I would have Martin Sheen play Professor Plum. Um, well, I would have. I, I don't. Yeah, if that's switching, I would make uh, Martin Sheen, Colonel Mustard, Richard Schiff, Professor Plum, because I think Richard that, Schiff that could too. also yeah. do those underlying, you know, kind of sexual. In fact, I could even see just like him very dryly going off with some of those sexual remarks, and everyone being like, "Oh, please," you know, like in, just in the way the film goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like this cast uh, X Y Z cast as uh, as it on there. All right. Well, let's do it with uh, with uh, the Hobbit. Oh wait, not enough women can't. Sorry, womp womp. Yeah, it's just it's just Hobbit number twelve for Miss Scarlet. Billy Crudup as as Wadsworth. No, I'm done. <laughs> okay, so. Don't make me do it. Don't make me do it. Um, I I started I started watching that show again. I know, it came back. I know. Oh. In space. In space. We won't talk about the overall plot of the film, but I do want to ask: What did you think of the film as it unrolled, both as a comedy and also as a mystery? Because you did turn to me at one point and say, "How much of this film do I need to retain from clues to figure out what's going to happen? Like, is there a solution that I can see?" Right. Well, I mean, I think, I think, like, I, again, I relate this back to Community, which I think broke my and many people's brains. Where it, um, there was the episode where someone stole um, Annie's pen. And and it's it's a bottle episode where they're all in the library and and they're trying to figure out who stole the pen. And then if you go back and watch it, when you know who stole the pen, you can go back and actually see the crime take place. And so I was wondering if there was that level of detail here where if I was observant, I would notice these things. And I I think the answer is not really. And nor does it have to be. I'm not saying it has to do that. But again, I think community like poisoned my brain for thinking about things like this. Well, and and a film we've covered, Glass Onion, does have a moment you just talked about. You can see yes, exactly. the murder yes. happening before it does. Like it is in front of you and a lot of that film is is about things being in front of you the whole time. Now, I will mm-hmm. say what we didn't 100% talk about is with the endings and the crafting of it and we'll use the last ending for reference first and that's the one that has most people having committed at least some part of the murder. Um mm-hmm. It, so the first instance where we are at the billiard room looking at a vet and she's screaming, there is one person missing, and that is Mrs. Peacock, which does let her kill the cook in ending B and ending C, where she kills the cook. So that is actually on screen. The next moment when we find the reveal that the cook is dead, and that is when it is Mr. Body that is getting killed the second time. The people that are at the far end of the room are Wadsworth, Plum, and Peacock, with a vet not being in the shot there, which allows a vet to stab Mr. Body or, or knock him out with the candlestick in the first one. It lets Mrs. Peacock, because we don't see her through the whole, there's a whole exchange where it's just green, Colonel uh, Mustard, Mrs. White and um mr green and the four of them just talking things out that's where the line where Colonel mustard says you lured men to you like a victim like like a spider with flies you know uh, flies were men are responsible to repeat another quote uh so that whole dialogue is going on 
They are then saying during that moment, Professor Plum could have killed Mr. Body in the third ending. Mrs. Peacock could have killed him in the second ending. Wadsworth could have killed him in the fourth unfilmed ending. And um, that would be a do it. So those murders at the top are. And then they basically do show you in the rest. So the Mrs. Peacock ones all just sort of, you assume, happen at some point when she's not in the cellar. She just gets split up and then she murders them, blah, blah, blah. We don't we don't get to see any of it. Um, but those ones literally happen as we're sort of told. I think the most unbelievable one is for her to get to the motorist when she just somehow got out of the cellar and then went back up and then found the secret passage all the way over without Colonel Mustard or Miss Scarlet finding her. Sure. Okay. Suspend your disbelief. Um, but that ending is also probably the weakest because we don't get to see her do a lot of the things. We're only really told about, mm-hmm. ah, this clue, you Cantonese cuisine, you know, which they never, rev- that's a reveal in two of the different endings that that's how you find out Mrs. Peacock does it. So in terms of motivation, and you asked me earlier, can you do it? You can't do that. They don't tell you it's monkey brains. So it's not something where, oh, you're told monkey brains earlier, so technically you have an obscure thing. I do wonder if that's part right, yeah, of the yeah. Agatha Christie sort of like specific nonsense where it's like, ah, the reveal of this person's favorite wine means there's the murderer. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to know this wine connection? And it's like, it's technically a clue. Um, the, the other ones from there are either displayed or can kind of go out as is, you know, Miss Scarlet with Yvette, um, Yvette kills all the ones beforehand. And then Miss Scarlet has the access being on the first floor, really advantage to kill the rest of the people on there. That's why A and C make the most sense in those two. So yes, but not, not ones that you're going to be able to figure out based on anything than just supposition. Because it's not as, you know... There's a shot where someone's getting murdered and Miss Scarlet isn't there like we had in an earlier one. It's just, oh, yeah, and they did the rest at the end. Yeah. I mean, I I think I was part of that was also, I think, I'm so used to, I think, modern stories would have put the pit, like, would have pinned it on someone. Like, you, like, I, like, like, we would have assumed, oh, it, it had to have been Scarlet because all of these things. Yes. And so that's, and so like that, the absence of that felt odd to me. There is, I think it's meant to be in one layer. And, and because the reason why I say this is because of the joke that is in every ending, which kind of is still funny to me, where they mentioned that communism was just a red herring and how most of the motivation for the murders are tangentially related to the blackmail. But, you know, in terms of it, it was like, they're just trying to cover their own tracks and Mrs. Peacock, you know, and uh, Miss Scarlet are assumed going to be keep. They just assume they're going to keep blackmailing people. Uh, you know, even after being a victim, they can now turn it around since they have all the evidence destroyed. Have you ever done a, a like a murder mystery night? I have been the person who was murdered in one, but I have not been like a character actor in one. Have mm. not participated in one, no. Which is, shocking. I feel like I feel like that would, I yeah, I was gonna say I feel like you that that would be entirely your bag, either being the Wadsworth of the evening or just being a participant in it. It it would. There is a theater in town that does do murder mystery stuff, but it just feels so, I don't know, exhausting. And also, uh, this is this is very me thing. I I'm. I get really nervous about mingling and the kind of people who come out to that are like 
awkward small talker people and so i'm afraid that i would oh yeah no you wrong even though i'm really good at small talk and that's just like an anxiety within me about being in public or whatever oh yeah no i mean i I think you should do it like for your friends oh yeah i wanted to have a a clue themed like dinner party murder mystery thing for a while i you know i'm trying to figure out if it would be something like a mafia you know werewolf type situation where each character has an ability for the game or if it is literally just oh we're gonna wander around my house and if you get alone with someone you can murder them and then we have to find the body and be like oh my god who was alone with the person at the time literally you know that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff um yeah let's talk about let's talk about finding about this a little more yeah 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 um um yeah, because I know you, because, like, I feel like it's been fundamental on this podcast because we watched Knives Out so early, your love of these sort of mysteries and, and, and um, like, specifically, like, murder mysteries. Does that come from this? Did you have that before you saw Clue? I think it is part of my baby brain. I have a piece of kindergarten homework that I received over the pandemic, which was list your favorite things. And on it is a clue board and me like making the entire map and room and everything. So I loved the game Clue as well as another game called 13 Dead End Drive, which is basically you mm-hmm. bu- yep. Yep, bumping off, you know, other people in a murder, you know, murder situation where you want to get an inheritance. And was was that the one was that did that one have a videotape? That one did not have a videotape. There was a clue that oh, okay. had that a VHS tape, um, yep, which yep. Uh, for how this could make people... Big 90s energy. Yeah. Well, and how this could made uh, infamously, uh, Jason mistook the VHS tape clue thinking that he's seen the movie clue or parts of the movie clue. And so oh. when he's like, he was like making fun of it, he quoted a line that I'm like, I don't know what this line is from. And it's in the Drop Dead Fair episode. And then afterwards, people were like, oh, he's quoting the VHS tape. I'm like, oh, no wonder he thinks it's shit because that's not like the movie. That's just like... You know, yeah. something different. Well, and related to that, I, I should mention with Cluedo, um, the UK had four seasons of a panel game show called Cluedo where they got like big, big then character actors to play the different people. And it was like pre-filmed little murder mystery vignettes. And at certain points, it was like a celebrity and a regular person or just like an expert or whatever. But people would just guess who who's like the audience would also vote on who they thought did it. And then as the story would go on, I think people event like certain suspects got eliminated and you could, you know, you'd vote around again and like a, just for fun kind of game show and stuff, which I'm like, I want the America to do that, but we would fuck it up so bad. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I... I, I this is just something that I do not remember not knowing what Clue was. And I was shown this movie very early. I was shown this movie probably before I should have at an appropriate age, but because I loved Clue so much, like the sexual innuendos just sort of went over my head. You know, I, I didn't read into much of the, uh, the double entendre. I just thought the slapstick was funny. You know, even some of the lines that are funny now for different reasons, I just found funny because everyone is so expressive. It's camp. It is, I think, weirdly for me, the reason that I like murder mysteries is that, like, how people like horror because 
it is an uh, escape for them because horror on screen is less horrific than real life horror, and it's like an escape. Mm-hmm. I think murder mysteries are my way of absorbing that horror. Like, you know, murder in real life and all those things obviously are horrific, and the news, you know, is meant to, like, scare us and put us in panic. But I can handle a character in a murder mystery getting murdered because that's what happens. That is what you are doing, you know. It's one of the reasons, too, mm-hmm. that uh, The Snowman, a film that we have – the, the film that you avoided seeing when you watch we should have mentioned you watched this live with me in my house when you visited me here yeah yeah we watched this in in your in your living room in iowa yes um you with your brand new snowman tattoo yes exactly so the tying it all together and the snowman it frustrates people because it's that is a murder mystery that you can't really solve and sure. when I accepted that and I just realized it's it's more of like a psychological thriller type of like drama than it is going to be like, all right, literally Mr. Policeman, I'm looking for the clues. Uh, it's not that type of, of, of thing. It, even that gets me because it still is this situation of, okay, we are going to hunt down who the killer is. And you know, for most of these in the end, the killer is going to get caught. And they'll go to justice. You know, some some of the best ones, of course, maybe have a twist where you learn the killer didn't did get away or whatever. But um, uh, a lot of the ones, like the Hercule Poirot, uh, I get the Christie novels. You know, they always get the criminal in the end. Uh, it's it's just how they go. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I think the board game aspect played heavily into it. It, it, it certainly was the board game first and then the movie. Um, but as I've gotten mm-hmm. older. Uh, the more and more I appreciate just how well written this script is. I've done readings mm-hmm. of it and the readings work just as well as it does on screen. So like you can get different actors in there obviously, and the material can still click. I had actually a female play uh, Wadsworth in one of my mm-hmm. uh, uh, versions of it. It was my favorite actress in Des Moines. But yeah, what are, so what are some of your final thoughts on Clue? Any questions that you had, like that the like plot wise even about the film that you left hanging, or just how it was crafted? I'll, I'll mention this, the fourth ending after we we get this, but uh, I kind of just want to make sure we get your thoughts. Um, I don't. I feel like we've covered it. I I I apologize. Like like I really enjoyed this movie, but I think. I don't know that it, I don't know that it grabbed me. I think part of it is if if I'd caught it at the right time mm-hmm. of my life, it could have it, it very much could have gotten a chokehold on me. Um, I thought it was I thought it was really good. Um, I I will say when I think about how it ties into the game, I do feel like there's a pretty big disconnect. Just just I think because it's so because it's so funny and so farcical and the game feels much more serious. Mm-hmm. Like I recognize all the parts are there, but like if you took the, if you took the, the names off, you scratch the names off and told me this was just a comedy about a murder. I wouldn't assume it's also a clue movie. If that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the elements that I find interesting about what Jonathan Lynn did with the script is Essentially, you know, this is it's not even like any of this is the origin of the clue characters in any version of the game that's been adapted right. ever. Um, mm-hmm. And so his gut could have been to take the instinct of, OK, I'm going to do a classic UK murder mystery, which he would have been very familiar with. So that's where mm-hmm. I 
I find it interesting his decision to do that. I, I'm sure he's he's given an interview about why he did that. But um, for me, I guess because I... I think of Clue the movie as Clue the movie. And I think of Clue the board game as the board game. I know that it's like... It's weird, but in my mind, it's also like... This movie shouldn't exist. Like, this was someone yeah. taken an IP, which we know now can be done so cynically, and they took it and they're like, okay, why don't I take an actual stab at making a very nuanced, very layered, very intelligent film that also is so stupid and absurd and, like, n trying to be a comedy. It's not like, oh, it's not like Murder by Death which is a film that a lot of people love more than Clue. And that has, like, absolute trope characters. Like, there's a Hercule Poirot parody. There's a Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. parody. Yeah, yeah. They're all very particular yeah. to that. But for me, I didn't enjoy nearly as much as Clue, partly because it is so dry. Like, a lot of it is very yeah. dry. And there's, like, Peter Sellers in Asian face, which is very uncomfortable now. Um, and yeah. uh, just some other stuff that I'm like, well, this this hasn't aged well at all. Clue has aged like fine wine. There's nothing about Clue that has gotten like, uh, like there's no treatment of characters or even like situations that one it isn't dealt in a way that is played for a laugh about that. So like Mr. Green's homosexuality is never played for for a laugh. The reactions of some of the other characters to it at the time are played for a laugh, but it's never meant to be like, oh, haha, ha, let's let's make fun of Mr. Green the homosexual. Like none of the jokes are about that, and like none of the jokes are about them just being women in general. It's about their specific personalities and situations, like jokes about murdering your husband or jokes about you know being a very loose woman of, of a certain clientele, those kinds of things. Um, but even those jokes, I think, age fine, and none of them are like, ee, ee, ee. you know, I I felt comfortable showing you Clue now just as I would have 10 years ago, 20 years ago when I was a kid running around quoting it like a little like a little brat, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the very briefly, the fourth ending, if case people don't happen to know about it, Wadsworth would have been the one behind all of the murders, and he did committed it because he was obsessed with committing, or was obsessed with being perfect, and so he wasn't a perfect employee because he hated his boss and he murdered him. He wasn't a perfect wife because his wife killed herself, and so he was going to commit the perfect murder. Um, and he basically says that he's poisoned them all and rips all the phone lights out and then um, locks the door behind him and leaves. And they all run in and... Uh, the cops later come in they realize they're not poisoned and they break through the glass and get out and then they're like wait a minute what happened to the dogs and then they see wadsworth driving away and one of the dogs is in the back seat and he pops up he goes Rrr, and then fade to black and honestly i'm kind of glad that ending doesn't exist because it doesn't sound like it would hold up as well compared to the other endings because we already get the great reveal of wadsworth being mr body in ending c you're not going to get a better reveal of that and then the reveal that mr green has been an fbi agent the whole time and has been in on it like that that's the better mm -hmm. ending the, the the fourth one with wadsworth having done it all again would have just been another like and this character did it all kind of thing you're like oh okay cool um but yeah that's that is the fourth one and now for the fifth ending the ending of this podcast because, as we always say at the end of this podcast, I'm going home to podcast my wife. This movie gave me a lot of Cluedo narrative dissonance.
A. No, don't don't a that. that. That's a boo. That one's that one should get booed. Daddy's got to go. Clue.